Well, we usually start off scripture, I mean, our service with scripture reading, and we're going to tag team it today. So we'll both read a few verses. I'm in Exodus chapter 1. Verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. That is the context about Exodus. Good job, buddy. Thank you. We know that context. If you know a little bit about the Bible, that the Exodus is exiting out of Egypt, and we'll get into that thing. I might be biting more than I can chew today. We're going to do the entire book of Exodus in just three or four hours, and so it's okay. It'll be good. Anyway, seriously, we'll, uh, we'll zip through here. But just in case you're new or, or visiting, my, um, my pointer is not pointing. So um, anyway, we are going, yeah, we're Grace Life Church. We are thrilled about God's grace. We, we love knowing about God, his word that leads us to Jesus. That's the whole point. Um, we experience grace. We extend grace, which is harder than it sounds. We grow in grace. And then out of a full cup, we impact people near and far. So that's who we are. And we have been rolling through the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Today we're in Moses doing the book of Exodus, and um, everything else is downstream. So that's kind of where we are, all right? But what, why, is, why do we have Exodus? Think about it this way. If you have the Bible and you take Exodus out, it gets weird, right? Because you got Genesis, and then all of a sudden you go to Leviticus. Leviticus has all these laws. Well, why do you have that? Why do we have Exodus? Who was it written to? Why was it written? Okay, we're going to back up and do some review. I know some of you haven't been with us before, and that's great. If you're on YouTube following this and you want a whole sermon on context, you can go back a month, hit pause now, go back a month, and then they can come back. We can't do that because we're live. Anyway, now in our culture, we're tempted with shortcuts. I'm tempted with the shortcuts. So we typically will think, you know, we go straight from the Bible to us. And, and sometimes in Bible studies, you hear people say things like, well, to me, this means, and I know we generally mean that maybe the Lord is impacting me with a certain idea, but really, my first thought is, I don't care what it means to you. I want to know what it means to the original people. Okay, anyway. So our goal is to handle rightly the word of truth. So we don't just go straight from the text to us. We go to them and then. Who was it written to? What's the historical context? What is their literary culture? What is their society like? How do they worship? All this stuff 
matters, right? And so we'll, we'll spend a lot of time just thinking about the, the, like maybe the first century, the gospel of Mark. I've told you about this before. Like there's already a gospel in the first century. It was the gospel of Caesar Augustus. He brings hope. He brings new laws and benefits and all this stuff. And so the gospel writers come and they co-opt that term and say, well, Jesus has a better gospel. Anyway, um, so we're doing context, all right? And from them and then in their culture, we go across to, well, this is uh, the theological context. I wanted to mention this because this sets the stage for, for um, Exodus. Religious context. Yes, put away the gods your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, serve the Lord. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Maybe you've heard that verse. Maybe you have it on a piece of wood above your kitchen table, as for me and my... But the verse before it is like, hey, and this is really good advice. Put away the false gods from Mesopotamia and Egypt. Oh, this is good. Write that down, right? Why do you have to say this? Because they're doing it. Okay, that's, that's what's going on. And so then from their world, we go and we do some theological and textual reflection. We're looking, is there a covenant here? Is it point to Christ somehow? We're just thinking. Since we're on the right side of the equation and Jesus is like behind us, we need to think about the Bible like, because he was of the opinion that all of the Old Testament pointed to him, right? So we need to ask that question. Well, how, Jesus seems to think, you know, the law, the prophets, the writings pointed to him. So does this particular passage point to it? And not every passage may, but most do. I mean, there's probably some obscure verse in Proverbs about saving money. But anyway, um, so here we go. We got this funnel. You know, the law, the prophets, Psalms, everything uh, is pointing to Jesus. And this, this is what the Pharisees missed. Remember? And this is why Jesus said in John 5, 30 and 40, he says to the Pharisees, you study the law thoroughly because you think in the law you have life but you're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. See, Jesus is saying, life is found in me and the Old Testament is pointing to me. Hello, PhDs, you should figure that out. Okay, and so after that, then we go down here to us. Finally, after we study their world, we think about covenants to Christ, we come down to um, us today, and that's the whole, the whole circle. So that is kind of where we're going, and that's what we're going. So I have a question for you. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to bend your mind. Maybe this is your homework assignment over lunch today. It's about context. Does con- culture, does culture shape your theology, or does your theology shape your culture? We'll move on. Anyway, yeah, does, does culture shape our theology in this world? Or does our theology shape culture? How do those relate? So in this, in this world, when you're looking at their social context, they are very much we over me. The, the, the plurality had priority over the individual. Well, we're, in our world, we're just the opposite. The individual has priority over the community. So we have to understand those kind of things just to, to figure it out and keep up with, with what they're doing, all right? All right, so that, and now we're going to review Genesis. Genesis 1, we have creation. It's all good, 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 good. Adam and Eve, very good. And then Adam and Eve are, are, are working on that um, energizing cycle of love and respect. They're working, they're worshiping. And then one day Adam goes passive 
and his silence brings chaos back into creation. So order and beauty now are death and disaster because he didn't speak up when he should have. Remember, God spoke up and created order out of chaos. Formless and void goes to formed and full by God speaking. And so Adam names the animals and you have order and his silence pulls chaos back into creation. And, and we know this is bad because when God shows up and says, Adam, what's up? How come you're hiding? He says, that woman that you gave me. <laughs> and right away, you know, something's gone terribly wrong. And um, we're all too familiar with shame and blame. That's the world we live in. And so then, you know, Genesis 6, before the flood, you have these words. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So we get the picture. And uh, it's corrupt, filled with violence, murder, and um, God wipes out the, the, everyone on the earth except Noah and his family because he was righteous in his culture, it says. And he put a sign of the covenant, and the sign is in the sky. And remember, I'll get into this later, but in this world between a, a, a god or an overlord and a servant, if, if you're a servant and you want to be protected by the overlord, if you can't produce the sign of the covenant, you got no protection. you got no benefits. So God is like, listen, I'm going to do something here that, that you cannot lose the sign of this covenant. It's going to be stuck in the sky after every time it rains, okay? Anyway, that's what's going on with that. So God is seen as a, as a compassionate, moving towards mankind, helping them thrive. And then we get to Genesis 12, and here's Genesis 12. This is the, the, the foundation of the Abrahamic covenant. I've got some key words highlighted there. But God said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, to your father's house, to a land I will show you. I will make, I will make for you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse in you all the families, plural, families. That word right there, all of a sudden we're reading that. We're like, wait a minute. Is he concerned about more than just the Jews? And the answer is yes. Okay, but if you're alive at Genesis 12, it's just kind of a vague, neat idea, but we get the whole deal. And so here's a picture about the same thing. This is the Abrahamic covenant, land, offspring, blessing. And I said it before, I'll keep saying it, that if you're in, in Genesis 13 or any passage downstream, it, that has something to do with this, okay? Because this is the map that the rest of scripture flows. We have to get Israel to be a land because we need a Messiah to bless the nations. So that's kind of where... Everything's going, all right? So, here we go. What's your final answer? Who is God? Who are you? What does that have to do with how you worship? These are profound questions. Or as one movie said, Jim, these are not robot questions. <laughs> these are profound questions, okay? So, we need, to, we need to think about this. Like, how do you understand who you are? How do you understand who God is? And what does that mean about how we worship? Are the gods we worship good? Do they give us life or do they enslave us, shame us, and tear us down? Key questions, all right? So, the Bible starts with God and male and female in unity, working and worshiping. The Bible ends in Revelation 21 with God, with male and female, working and worshiping. But we're in the middle. The covenant's been broken by sin. And we have all kinds of tensions and brokenness. And, and much, if not most, in our world is not the way it should be. And if you think about the impacts of sin, it can get kind of depressing. So we don't focus on the sin. We focus on Jesus and the hope we have in him. 
So God reaches out because we're in the middle of broken covenants, and he establishes covenants with Noah, with Abraham, and covenants are the doorways of reconciliation, and this is how God is, is moving forward here, okay? So this is, these are the key questions that Genesis and Exodus clear up. Who, who is God? Now, think about this. I, I don't have time to go back in this again. If you're watching on YouTube, hit pause. You go back to see that whole sermon on context because I lay out the Mesopotamian story of creation between Apsu and Tiamat and mixing blood and they're angry at everybody. There's fighting and mankind is so noisy they just want to kill them. And it's, it's not an encouraging story if this is your heritage as humanity, right? And so that's the story that Israel understands. Joshua 24 said they're worshiping gods from Mesopotamia. They're trapped in the fear of Tiamat and Apsu and hundreds of other gods. And remember, anytime you have a plurality of gods, you always have fear and insecurity because you never know which god you offended or you don't know what to do. We have one god who has revealed himself and he's good and he continues to reveal himself. He goes over the top to initiate and communicate and relate. So, most of the story of Genesis, starting in Genesis 12, happens, now we're, Ur is up here, don't have time to redo that, but it, so Abraham goes from Padam Aram all the way down here to Egypt. Now, up in Ur, there is theology. It's bad theology, okay? It's all the crazy stuff. And, and down here in Egypt, there's theology in Egypt. It's bad theology, and they soak it up like a dry sponge. 400 years of that. And they come out. And Genesis and Exodus are answering their questions. They're confused. Who, who is God? Is he, is he not ang- the angry monster we read about? No. Who are we? Are, are we not insignificant slaves? No, you're not. Well, who, do we worship like one or a whole bunch of gods? So these are the questions that Genesis and Exodus are answering. Okay? So... Um, Abraham goes, and he gets to Canaan, the promised land, and he finds a famine. But if you think about it, it's like, it's like okay, maybe, maybe the Lord didn't have like a marketing class. Like, this is not really a good plan if you, if you get your guy to go to where you want him to go, and the first thing he encounters is a famine, and you've promised him fruitfulness. It's like, yeah, that's not going to sell real well. Okay, God is more concerned about faith than marketing slickness, right? And so when do we need faith? We need faith when things look like they're just falling apart. Abraham obeys and he goes and and you got nothing. There's famine. And so he goes to Egypt and um, and then that whole thing with lying about his wife and everything else, okay? So the first thing, Genesis answers the first question, who is God? He says he is the sole creator. He's good. He's faithful. He desires relationship. Genesis is answering that. Now we're going to go to Exodus. This is a chart of Exodus. Basically three chunks. You've got their slavery in Egypt, the the deliverance. They get out through the ten plagues. They wander a little bit to Sinai. And then we have the whole Ten Commandment thing. That's that's a big deal. But look at down here, the, the, the time frame. 400 years of slavery, three months of wandering around, and then slowing down. So in terms of the focus, where does the author slow down and put a lot of detail? It's at Sinai. That's kind of the focus of of the book, okay? So this is where we're going. Now, geographically, most of Exodus starts in Exodus, and then they come out, and they they wander, and they end up at Sinai. 
But as slaves, their work and worship are whacked. Their work as slaves, no significance. They're worshiping Ra or Apsu or who knows who they're worshiping. And so they're very, very confused. And again, Genesis and Exodus are answering these questions for these people. Who is God? Who are they? And who should they worship? So these are the questions they're answering. So we get to the end of Genesis. And I, I mentioned this last week, the, the end of Genesis, you flip a page, or maybe not even, and the beginning of Exodus, and there's, there's a gap, okay? The end of, of Genesis, um, they're heroes. Joseph is in the land. He gets, he gets Goshen, the best of the land. And then you flip the page. And so here's the, end of, here's the end of Genesis. Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. So they're in Egypt. Now this is Exodus. Now there arose a new king over Egypt. He didn't know Joseph, and they start killing all the babies. And you're like, I thought Joseph was a big deal. How, how do you start killing all of Joseph's offspring if he's the one that saved Egypt? Okay, yeah, that's, that is a good question. And the answer is the Hyksos and Hatshepsut. Yeah, I know, I just lost you. But seriously, um, I, will, I will explain that, okay? So... Um, here is a very, very key verse. I'm going to break it down. There arose a new king. It doesn't say Pharaoh. It's a king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, probably not an Egyptian. He said to his people, which would not be the Egyptians, behold, the people of Israel are too many, too mighty for us. This is the Hyksos. Hyksos is the name of an Asiatic group of people from 1700 B.C. to 1500 B.C. They swarmed into Egypt. They took control of Egypt, not by military might, you know, no, no Black Hawk helicopters and, and um, nukes. They, they got positions of, of influence in the government. They bought land. And uh, it kind of sounds like China today. But anyway, I'm just saying, um, they snuck in there and started to control. And Egyptian history is eerily silent over this period of it. They don't want to write, yeah, we got beat. So it just sort of disappears. Anyway, so the Hyksos come in and they control this area of Egypt for a couple hundred years at the same time that Moses' story is, is getting to go. So this verse, when it says there arose a new king, probably the Hyksos king, not a pharaoh, but a king. And this, this is what he says to his people, because the Hyksos, they don't rule by millions of people. They rule, rule by tentative powers of position. So he says to his people, hey, th this multiplying group of the Israelites, they're a threat to us and... They are too many for us. Now, no Egyptian would say they're too many for us. That Egypt is, is the whole country. Okay, so anyway, this is that foreign, foreign group. And so um, Moses is born in this climate, in this culture. And, um, and then when Egypt does take over control, the Pharaoh continues the policy of killing the babies because they're so, they're so they barely control their country. So Moses is born. Um, under the edict of killing him, um, and his mom puts him in the river in a basket, and then uh, the sister sees that he's down there, and uh, classic, you know, the sister of Moses is like, hey, you got a baby there, would you like me to go get some random Hebrew woman to nurse him? And, and she goes and gets mom, so mom is paid to, to care for her own son, which is lovely, I love that. So here's Moses' life in a nutshell. 40, 40, 40. He spends 40 years in Egypt. He kills a guy, and then he spends 40 years in Midian, and then 
he goes back and the exodus happens and he spends 40 years, the book of Numbers, wandering around and dies outside the promised land. So let's go back here. Uh, this is the first 40 years of his life. So, um, and I said, I, now, now you understand the Hyksos, that group of Asiatic people that came in and kind of controlled the land. There's this other word that you need to know, uh, and it's a woman's name. Her name is Hatshepsut. Now, I know some young families here, you might be expecting a baby, and I would recommend the name Hatshepsut. It's wonderful. No one else will have it. And um, she was the pharaoh of Egypt. And so the question is like, well, it says Pharaoh's daughter went down and found him and adopted him. And if you dig into this, and I could go on for three hours on this, and I used to when I taught college, but um, Hatshepsut's family structure, her brothers and sisters died. She, she was the royal family, so the, her brother that was going to be Pharaoh, he died. So she's the only one, and she has a daughter, and the daughter dies, and there is no heir to the throne of Egypt. It's possible, historians argue, that Hatshepsut adopted Moses to be and train him the next, as the next pharaoh, okay? Um, so maybe that's going on. But meanwhile, so the first 12 years of his life, he is in line to be the next pharaoh of Egypt. But when he's 12, there's a baby born down the corridor who starts crying, and that's a royal bloodline baby whose name is Tutmose III. And all of a sudden, Moses' existence turns into a giant question mark. I don't really belong here. I'm no longer in line for the throne. I'm not even an Egyptian. And as he goes, he goes to visit his Israelite brothers, and he doesn't fit with them. It's like, dude, you grew up in the palace. You're driving a Ferrari for crying out loud. You, you can't relate to us. So he doesn't belong with the, the uh, Israelites. He doesn't belong with the Egyptians. And that typifies Moses' entire existence. He is the most lonely figure in all of Scripture, if you ask me. Okay? He's alone all the time. Well, he kills an Egyptian. In Acts 7, here's, here's Luke's summary of that. When he's 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the Israelites, who were enslaved. Seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man by avenging him and striking down the Egyptian. So he kills an Egyptian. This next verse is classic. This is Acts 7:25. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. <laughs> Whoops. He, he killed the guy. He's like, hey, woo, let's go. They're like, well, what are you doing? <laughs> you know what I mean? He's like, ah, dead guy. They're not with me. So he runs away. Awkward, right? He runs away and um, he supposed. Now, at this point, we ask, ask a question. If he's been raised in the Egyptian palace, Trained, Acts 7, 25 says he received the best education Egypt had to offer. It says he was a, a man powerful in words and deeds. Remember that when you start reading about, oh, I stutter. Okay, remember that. So when Moses, if he's going to come back to Egypt, how will the local media view his return to Egypt? Someone who's been trained possibly to be the next pharaoh. Somebody who has political connections. Somebody who in the vacuum of leadership could start a military coup. He's already killed one guy. So if Moses goes back to Egypt, it's not just uncomfortable. He's like, they're gonna, they're gonna, I'm a target. They are not going to understand any motive except for a military political coup. And so he's like, yeah, I... That's why the Lord says, Moses, go back. He's like, no, who am I? What do I say? Who are you? I just, no. One of the reasons. I just don't want to do that. 
Okay? So this is why God remembered Noah. It's in bold letters there. Exodus chapter 2, 23, 24. God remembered his covenant with Abraham. God heard the cries and he remembered his covenant. So again, I'm just trying to say what God is doing in the Exodus goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? That is where we are. And then this is Hatshepsut. I've talked about her. I think she should buy a vowel or two. But um, Hatshepsut, I have no idea if that's how you pronounce it, but uh, Moses um, grew up with her. Um, she was one of, there were a couple female pharaohs. In fact, it's kind of funny, this one, see the, the black thing on her chin? Um, the, it was an ornamental beard. And so on, there's a museum in Chicago I went to a couple times, and you could see the, the statue of Hatshepsut. And she had the beard, but she also had a black line going up here. They actually, the string that went around her ears to hold the beard there. It was, a, it was like a, George Washington, the wig, same thing, okay? Just sort of like a, a thing they did. Anyway, so... Um, that's her deal. But here is a verse that talks about this. Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was a mighty man in word and deed. Now think about this. If you're trained to be the next pharaoh and all of a sudden you're not going to be, uh, and if you're in the, the palace of Egypt and everyone knows you're really one of the slaves and you're 12 years old, that's that fragile age where people are brutal and you know, making fun of people. I'm wondering if the whole insecurity thing has nothing to do with the reality of his training, but just the, the, the social pressure and the, the insults and the shame that he is getting. I don't know, but it could be. All right. So Moses is alone, and uh, he doesn't belong with the Egyptians. He doesn't belong with the Israelites. And then in chapter 3 and 4, we did this last week. God says, go. He says, no, don't want to do that. Moses' fear is answered with God's presence. Remember that? Whatever Moses throws up there as an excuse, God's answer is, I am with you. Love that. That's good stuff. All right? So, if he's going to go back, his first problem is that they might think I'm going to start a military coup and overthrow the system. Um, and that gets us to the second timeline here. Tutmos dies. Now, this, if, if you want to get into the date of the Exodus and, and all the timeline, one problem you have to remember is that there was a pharaoh who ruled for 40 years before Moses goes back. And there's only one of those in this time period, and that's the chronology I'm showing you. Um, but anyway, the Lord says, hey, go back. All the men who are seeking your life are dead, Exodus 4:19. And on his way back, the Lord points out that Moses' son is not bearing the, the mark of the covenant. So, so... He's finally going to go back, but on the way back, the Lord's like, oh, by the way, the covenant, the sign of the covenant. You know, we have the Noah, the Noah covenant with the, the rainbow. We have the Abrahamic covenant with circumcision. And, and Moses' main man to take and go back and be the theological spokesman for how God works and how Israel works and all this has not given his son the sign of the covenant. Uh, awkward. Why would Moses hesitate? The text doesn't say, but I, I'm wondering if he's like, man, if I give my son the Ark of the Covenant, that he is 100% in the Israelite slavery part, and he misses all the great stuff in Egypt. I don't know if he's torn between cultures. I don't know. But he hesitated. For some reason, there's like, ah, no, no, no. And so his wife, Zipporah, she does it. She circumcises it, and basically he's like, hey, Moses, if you're not going to do this, I will. And so he does, but there's an awkward situation there. So, the plan for the slaves in Egypt 
is to, for them to follow Moses, whom they don't really know or appreciate, whom God, whom they don't know or appreciate, has sent. And so, it, again, it's not a marketing deal. It's like, no, it's just not going to work. Well, that's, you know, it does work, okay? So God has faith. Um, Moses has faith in God. So Moses and God together, that gives us this next question. Who are we? God says, they, Israel is my firstborn son. You shall say to Pharaoh, this says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Um, Exodus says they are not insignificant slaves, but he's chosen them as his own people. He will be their God with whom they will have a future and a hope. This is the time in the story of history where Israel becomes a nation. The first time they're talked about as Before this, they're just like a bunch of people. They're Jacob's descendants, Abraham's descendants, the family, a clan. Now they're starting to be talked as a nation, okay? So... The second problem is the, uh, the uncircumcised son. I talked about that. And so then let's go over here to Exodus 7 through 11. We have the 10 plagues. Now, these plagues are, are curious because everywhere else in Scripture, you know, it's like blah, 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 and there was a plague. We don't like just one. That's kind of like weak. I mean, a plague is fine, but here there's 10. What's up with that? Okay, it turns out that every plague... He's answering the question, who should we worship? Every plague is connected to and pointing out Yahweh's superiority over a specific Egyptian god. They're all correlated. So the blood is more, more powerful than the god of the Nile because the, the Nile is turned to blood and the, the local god of the Nile can't handle it. Frogs, a frog head, a goddess of birth with a frog head. Lice, the god of the desert, the sun and... Uh, and um, the disease on the animals, boils on man and Sekhmet, the god of power, disease, he can't control that. So all of these gods, down into death, Pharaoh's firstborn son was considered a god. They all are falling powerless before Israel's god. Now, if you want to zoom out and extrapolate this, remember in this culture, they tended to tie the, the gods to geographical space. So if you're in Egypt, you worship Ra or Sekhmet or whatever. But if you cross a boundary and go to another country, well, there's a different god in that other country. That's just how they thought. That's why they, they called their god, our god Yahweh is god of the desert because he provided for us in the desert. But it was logical, wrong, but logical for them when they stepped over the Jordan River into Canaan to think, who are the gods here? Oh, it's Baal, and he's the god of fertility. We just have to kill our babies to get his blessing. That's how it rolled. Wrong, but logical, okay? So this is what's going on with their, with their world. Now, okay, I just got, I can't resist this. Historically, there's this really cool thing. It's called the Papyrus Ippawur. It is an eyewitness account of the 10 plagues from an Egyptian perspective. Why this isn't more known, I don't know, but and I don't have time to show you, but all, all 10 of them, here's one, here's one. Um, the papyrus says, plague is throughout the land, blood is everywhere, Exodus said there was blood throughout the land of Egypt. The river is blood, papyrus says. And again, Exodus 7, all the waters that were the river turned to blood. And point by point by point by point, somebody is seeing this and writing it down and it gets, it gets a little weird when you get to the 10th one, the angel of death. And I don't know if you've seen the old Charlton Heston movie with Yul Brenner and the, the Exodus. The angel of death in that movie is this weird red mist that flows throughout and then the kids die. 
Not so according to the eyewitness account. Here's the eyewitness account. Well, here's Exodus. Exodus says, It came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land, the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on the throne. The papyrus, the eyewitness account, says, Forsooth, the children of princes are dashed against the walls. The children of princes are cast out in the streets. A little more violent. I'm not... Anyway. For what it's worth category. Okay? So, the, the ten plagues are answering the question, who should we worship? You should worship Yahweh because he's more powerful than any other God. And they were supposed to do this. They were supposed to take that lesson and take it with them in their back pocket as they went to any other nation, thinking Yahweh is more powerful than Moab's God, Shemosh, or Canaanite's God, Baal, or any other God. But they didn't quite connect that, okay? So that's what they're supposed to do. All right, so answer number one, why should we worship Yahweh, is the ten plagues. Answer number two is the ten commandments. This God is knowable, he's good, he's revealing himself, and you don't have to be in the dark about this. So here are the ten commandments, right? And you know it's my big beef that on the internet, you can't find an image with all ten on each side, and that's how it worked. Because the suzerain would have a complete copy of all ten, and the vassal would have a complete copy. I'm starting to not trust the internet. Anyway, it's okay. Just, that's the... Now, I want to kind of talk about number four, the, um, the Sabbath. It says, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath. On it you shall not work, you or your son or your daughter. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. So we, we get the, the commandments about don't kill people, don't steal donkeys, and don't worship other gods. We're like, okay, that makes sense. The Sabbath, I just want to unpack this for you. If the Israelites were, were coming out of Mesopotamia and 400 years of slavery, they have never had the choice to not work. They've never had the freedom to stop. Shabbat means to cease, to stop. And the Lord is saying, you are now free people, and it's going to take a while to get that into your mind and your heart. And I'm going to command you every week to exercise the freedom to stop. You no longer have to work all the time. When you stop, you reflect on me, you remember how I delivered you from slavery. You worship me. And you rest, and you thrive, and you grow deeper in relationship to me and to other people. Is that your experience? Are you acting like a slave, working seven days a week, not taking the advantage of the freedom that we have? Your salvation doesn't depend on you working seven days a week. I know other things may, but still, we, 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 need, we want to carve that time out. So... Um, it used to be in our culture 100 years ago that leisure was a sign of wealth. The more you sat around and just drank tea, the more wealthy. Now, it's not that way. Now, busyness is a sign of wealth. The more you sit around, the more people are like, well, yeah, what's your problem? It's a weird deal. Like, if you want to be in and hip, you've got to be just out of your mind crazy busy, all right? The Sabbath, the Ten Commandments, the, the verbiage for, for number four takes 31% of the words of the Ten Commandments. 31% to explain what's going on here. I think that's interesting, all right? And, and maybe you're saying, well, I, the devil never takes a day off. Well, great. Let's just fix our eyes on Satan 
who is not the author and perfecter of our faith. You, you see what I'm saying? And besides, he loses. So we, we, um, they, there was a time in history where they took the seven-day week and they messed with it. And they made a 10-day week with one-day weekend. It was during the French Revolution. It's nuts. It, it, productivity. They did it for, for more product, productivity. Plummeted suicides go up, and the whole thing was just a nightmare. So anyway, that, that doesn't work. Uh, we are kind of hardwired for some kind of rest and rhythm like that, all right? All right, anyway. Um, so Shabbat, Sabbath, means to stop. And also in Isaiah 53, it talks about how there's delight associated with 58. Sorry, I say 58 because you're looking at what you say. Uh, Sabbath is also connected to delight. All right, so they're coming out of Egypt. They've been slaves. They're now free to not work all the time. And um, that is new for them. So then they, they build the tabernacle. And the tabernacle means dwelling place. And in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt. That word is tabernacled. Jesus tabernacled among us. So if you're a Jew, you're like, ah, you're connecting the tabernacle, God's presence with Jesus, God's presence. And, and yes, that is an obvious answer to that. All right. So why should they worship God? Who is God? He's the creator. He's good. He wants to know you. He wants to be known. Who are we? You're not insignificant slaves. You're freed from slavery. Remember that every seventh day all right, the Sabbath, and who should we worship? You should worship one God and one God only, and here is later on in the book of Joshua, um, he lists a bunch of verbs that God did for them, and this is the basis for them to worship. He brought you out of Egypt. He brought you across the sea through the wilderness. He delivered you from the Amorites, from Moab, conquered Jericho, conquered the Amorites, the Perizzites, all the, all the ites, right? And therefore, now obey the Lord and worship him, because... This is all he's done for you. So that brings us to that point of worship is a response. If you are oblivious to what God has done for you, you're, you're in a difficult spot. That's how Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, the whole book is pathetic. The, the whole ending of the Old Testament, who is God? What has he done for us? Why should we worship him? You're reading this, you're like, this is the end of the story? This is not good. D minus, what are you doing? I mean, like... Not a good ending, unless, of course, Jesus is on the next page, which he is, and that turns into an A+. All right. So, worship God because he is more powerful than any God in any other country. You've experienced this. Look at all the other countries. He's more powerful than any other God from any other country. And one of the reasons God said he was going to bring the ten plagues was to judge Egyptians' gods, to show them as powerless, all right? So, are the gods we worship powerful? Do they deliver us or do they enslave us? God is good. He wants our worship. He doesn't demand it. He's not going to twist our arm. We are free to reject him and go do our own thing. We're free to work, work ourselves into an early grave, we don't have to. He has delivered us. He's freed us. So that leads us to our, our questions here. If, if you're new, we always end the servant service with a few questions as the music plays here. We'll just take a minute or two of quiet to think. Lord, how do I think of you? How do I think of me? And, and what does this mean for, for my worship? It, it, it might be a good exercise to start reviewing some things God has done for you, 
specific things, maybe situations, answers to prayer, could be scriptural things, salvation, but it could be more, you know, more blessings this last week that something really worked out. You just remember those and go, wow, thank you for that. Most likely there's situations that aren't all done yet, that you're in the middle of tension, and you're like, speed it up, Lord. And, and that's just like Abraham. He goes to Canaan, and there's a famine. He wants us to develop faith that takes 